welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are talking about the virgin suicide. So many virgins, so much suicide. It's quite a bit of suicide, isn't it? I'm going to try to keep it light because it's a pretty grim text. It is, and yet there's something quite beautiful about both the book and the film, which yeah. I'm excited to talk about. I agree. I agree completely. And I think too, well, one of the things we're going to talk about today is perspective and whether or not this is a YA text. There's a distance between the narration and the horrors that make it less dark than it could be. Indeed. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting discussion to have in that context about perspective. Like, mm -hmm. is this the way that it would have been approached had it been for more discreetly teenage audiences? We'll all know, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but before we get to that, do you have any news for the homework? I have so much homework news. <laughs> I'm really oh. excited. Okay. Oh, I have what we on the bookish internet call a galley brag to share with you. Interesting. Tell me more. This is when you get an advanced reading copy of a book that you know people are dying to read and you get to feel like a little bit smug about the fact that you got it first. I see. Mm -hmm. And I have this one so early because this is a book that's not going on sale until October. Okay. Tell me more. It's called Dear Sweet Pea by fave of the show, Julie Murphy, <gasps> author of Dumplin' and Puddin'. Yes. And it is her first foray into middle grade fiction. Okay, so yeah. younger than what we would have seen in Dumplin'. Exactly, a little bit younger. So let me read the synopsis for you. It sounds adorable. I'm about two chapters in, and so far I'm really, I'm really pleased with it. So here it says, uh, Dear Sweet Pea is a funny, heartwarming story about a sixth grader named Patricia, widely known as Sweet Pea, as she navigates her parents' unconventional divorce and finds herself in the unlikely role of the town's advice columnist. Oh, fun. I know. So it says, uh, Sweet Pea wasn't sure what to expect when her parents announced they were getting a divorce. She never could have imagined that they would have the, quote, brilliant, unquote, idea of living in nearly identical houses on the same street. In the one house between them lives their eccentric neighbor, Miss Flora May, the famed local advice columnist behind Miss Flora May. Dividing her time between the two homes is not easy, and it doesn't help that at school, Sweet Pea is now sitting right next to her ex-best friend, Kira, a daily reminder of the friendship that once was. Things might be unbearable if Sweet Pea didn't have Oscar, her new best friend, and her 15-pound cat, Cheese. Then one day, Flora leaves for a trip and asks Sweet Pea to forward her letters for the column. Sweet Pea is able to contain her curiosity about them until she recognizes the handwriting on one of the envelopes. What she decides to do with that letter sets off a chain of events that will forever change the lives of Sweet Pea DeMarco, her family, and many of the readers of Miss Flora May. Hmm. Consider my interest, Pete. Right? It sounds adorable. It is middle grade fiction. So, so far it's been a pretty quick read. I'm just a couple of chapters in, but it's still like, it's nearly 300 pages. So. That seems like a rather long book for a middle grade. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you think about Harry Potter, which kind of starts as middle grade and becomes YA as its readers aged, definitely the first couple of books didn't get near 300 pages. Those tomes mm -hmm. came much later. So, but it's Julie Murphy. So, you know, it's got a great voice, great humor, and lots of talk about body image, lots of talk about sort of what it is to grow up and be a girl and experience the world from that perspective. But this time with this added idea of it's only the sixth grade. So it's kind of where a lot of that stuff starts, right? right. Um, and this weird divorce, which so far, two, three chapters in is pretty hilarious. So anyway, 
I'm really digging it and I'm excited to have it and I'm excited to brag that I have it because it doesn't come out till October. <laughs> yeah, and even though we're still recording super far in advance, that's still quite early. I know. I know. I'm so pleased. <laughs> How about you, Joe? Did you do your homework? I did better than last week, so <laughs> I'm already off to a great start. Yay. My homework was actually relatively easy, and this will also help to date the show a little bit, but news came out today that one of the film adaptations that we had been interested in, I was about to say eagerly anticipating, but that would have been a bit of a lie. One of the ones that we had our eye on as something to consider down the road was the film adaptation of The Knife of Never Letting Go, which is being turned into a film called Chaos Walking, which is the name of the larger series this is a movie that's starring tom holland and some girl whose name i suddenly can't remember (laughs) but it was meant to be released sometime this summer and there had been no news there had been no trailer and suddenly it got taken off the books and it's Mm -hmm. now been bumped back to 2020 so tell me something joe i'm not a film expert but that sounds to me like a bad sign yes and (laughs) i think this has Something less to do with the actual source material, because I talked about this in a previous homework intro, because I hadn't realized it was being adapted until I saw who was starring in it. But essentially what happened, it seems, is that the director, one Doug Lyman, who we will know if you've seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith, or if you've seen The Bourne Identity, or if you've seen Tom Cruise's The Edge of Tomorrow. So this is someone who, like make successful movies mm-hmm. he's fairly prolific especially as an action director so you'd think he would have a good handle on this except for asterix asterix he has a very bad reputation for projects going completely off the rails oh. and apparently the word on the street it came out in the hollywood reporter today is that the studio is so displeased with what he has delivered it is considered unreleasable so <laughs> It actually sounds like they've gone back and they're now going to be doing really substantial reshoots. So if you follow Tom Holland on Twitter, you'll see that they are on day four of those reshoots. So it almost sounds like they're reshooting the movie in anticipation of a release for next year. So in the case of a reshoot like that, do they retain the same director or do they have like a stunt director who gets brought in? To be honest, normally you would have somebody else come in to kind of pitch it up, but It sounds like they have kept Doug Lyman on, which is a very strange set of circumstances because normally if someone has not delivered to you the goods, you wouldn't then keep them on and say, well, have a second try. Here, have some more of our money. (laughs) Yeah. So this has now gone from a curiosity to a potential train wreck, but we're going to have to wait to see because if you think about some of those other movies that I've named... Those films have come together, and they've actually done well at the box office. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not they can pull this off, if they can get a better edit, and whether or not they make that cut for next year. Right. Yeah, so it's a stay tuned. It's interesting because, as we've talked about before, I had a rough time with the book, but I also recognized that it's like pretty prime film adaptation material, so mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting particularly all the discussions that we've been having about realist YA not selling as well, not being converted into film adaptations as frequently. So this is the opportunity to say, hey, we've got more of the dystopian future kind of stuff that have made for some really big franchises. 
you know, there really isn't anything else on the horizon that mm-hmm. they've been talking about adapting. So this is kind of, like this was, I think, the best possible chance apart from potentially Artemis Fowl, which is coming mm. out in the fall. Right, right, right. And looks like hot garbage, but <laughs> then a Brana. Oh, that guy. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Shall we move on to the main event? I think so. Let's talk about the Virgin Suicide. We're talking today about the 1993 debut novel by Jeffrey Eugenides. Eugenides would go on to, uh, gosh, he won the either the Pulitzer or the Nobel for his it's second novel. It was the Pulitzer yeah. um, for Middlesex, which is a novel that I, mm, I <laughs> believe, I have a hard time with it because I genuinely believe that it's probably, in terms of craft and form, the very best contemporary novel of, really? of our time i do oh, that's not where i thought you were gonna go with this <laughs> i do but uh the representation of intersexuality in middlesex is pretty freaking problematic hmm. so eugenides is very gifted but not always the most sensitive writer on the planet um, no. not always the most aware of people outside of his representative group which i actually am gonna say i think is a kind of a problem in the virgin suicides too in terms of the way the women are written. 100%. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to jump ahead to Middlesex. I'll focus on The Virgin Suicides. Anyway, so I had read this before, and I read it sort of through the lens of having really loved a lot of things about Middlesex. And I do think it's a really good novel that is going to give us a lot to talk about. So the novel tells the story of the Lisbon sisters, and they are five young women, ages 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. <laughs> gosh that poor mother i know seriously who all basically within the span of one year a little more if you count mary um Mm -hmm. commit suicide yes and the novel is not told from the perspective of any of those five young women or their family the novel is told by really a group of admirers yeah a really like a group of anonymous neighborhood boys when this novel first came out a lot of critics pointed to the idea that the neighborhood boys are sort of serving as a greek chorus in the book eugenides has joked that if his last name wasn't eugenides nobody would have called the narrator a greek chorus and maybe he's right about that but it's the idea of sort of like there's not one narrator all of the boys of the neighborhood are narrating this experience of watching these young women grow up and commit suicide basically yes so i guess we should we probably should really say off the top and i'm sure that what we've talked about so far indicates it but we're going to be talking about suicide yes suicidal ideation and acts of suicide in this podcast so if that's not something you're interested in i mean we are going to have to talk about those scenes as we analyze the book so totally fair if you want to skip this one and and take a listen next week instead yeah so the first of the girls to attempt suicide is cecilia and uh, that's basically where the novel opens or the boys telling us about cecilia's attempt to slit her wrists in or i guess she does slit her wrists or attempt to die in the bathtub at home she's saved by the paramedics this first time and from there the novel goes on to really sort of articulate these girls and their life the boys obviously feel that the girls are being raised too strictly Mm -hmm. um their parents are catholic their mother especially and fairly strict on issues of modesty and engagement with the boys in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. their father is the boys math teacher science teacher Mm, it's math 
It's math. Okay. So the boys have this weird relationship where they kind of, the boys as narrators have a lot more empathy for the father, whether because they know him more through the context of the school, whether because he's male, as are they, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure, but they definitely have more empathy for the father. The mother is a very unsympathetic character. Oh yeah. Part of sort of Cecilia's like cure that is suggested by this psychiatrist is that she have more of a social life. And so there are a few sort of attempts to engage with the boys and then they throw this party. The girls are allowed to throw their first and only ever party, which is a pretty stilted and awkward affair. And the party ends when Cecilia excuses herself from the party, uh, goes upstairs and jumps out of her bedroom window. And she ends up impaled on the fence posts. So grody. It is. It is. And so and there's a bunch of stuff that goes on in the text around, is the mother to blame? Is the father to blame? Is the community to blame? Eventually, Cecilia's death seems to be more or less forgotten as the rest of the girls return to school in the fall, but they're under much tighter surveillance by their parents. And so in and among this idea of sort of being surveilled both by their father at school and their mother at home and not being able to have much of a social life, Lux, who's the second youngest after Cecilia, so now the youngest surviving mm-hmm. uh, Lisbon kind girl. Kind of arguably the, the focus. Like she gets the most attention in the book. Well, it's interesting. I, I want to talk about that because I don't disagree with you, but I think that that choice is so much more pronounced in the film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That it colors how I read the book. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. sorry for interrupting. No, that's okay. Anyway, she starts a rom- romance with Trip Fontaine, who convinces Mr. Lisbon to let him and a bunch of the other boys take the girls to the homecoming dance. And Lux misses curfew. So that she can sleep with Trip. I was going to say, because she's having some sex. Yeah. <laughs> so she misses curfew. And because she misses curfew... The family basically goes into lockdown. The girls are pulled out of school and the house, I mean, Eugenides is really talented and he does this thing where the house is basically like decaying around the girls who are also sort of decaying because they can't escape this close quarters that they live in. Mm -hmm. It's very symbolic. The boys have continued their obsessive watching of the girls, including seeing Lux on the roof having sex with a series of suitors. Random men. And eventually the girls send a message to the boys. They use this Morse code and then they kind of play records and they send secret letters and they get this message to the boys that they need to come over at midnight. And the boys believe that they're going to be helping the girls escape the house. And instead... They have a brief conversation with Lux, who tells them to wait for her sisters. And what the boys discover instead are the bodies of the girls, all of whom have attempted three to completion suicide again. Mm -hmm. So at the end of this evening, Lux, Bonnie, and Therese have all passed away. Mary, she does not complete her suicide attempt, but she is hospitalized. The family basically disintegrates in the wake of this Mm -hmm. they have someone else come in to sell all their stuff the house is sold and even though mary is still alive she's sort of tenuously so when she does come home she completes a suicide attempt and the lisbons are left with no surviving children and they eventually abandon the community 
And what we're left with at the end of this book is like this sort of eulogy-ish by the boys, but ultimately a reflection that like, I mean, he the literally, the narrator literally says what matters about those girls is that we loved them. Yes. And so what you get in the end is it's interesting, Joe, I think that we're doing this book on the heels of Oh, I know. Paper towels, right? This is not planned, but these past three weeks have been very informative in this section. <laughs> it's true, right? Because this is all about women being fodder for the imagination and not human beings unto themselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the book, life goes on for the community. It's sort of the end of 70s suburban heyday for greater Detroit. I guess. And we kind of have this tying together of the girl suicides with the general economic and social decay that's going on at the same time. And uh, it's it's a pretty depressing ending. It really is. <laughs> and yet there's so much to talk about. I feel like the most interesting thing to me is the fact that the book is written... It's obviously of a very specific time, like the events of the book take place over the course of, as you said, just over a year. And yet at the same time, the book is conducted in a series of interviews that happen at indeterminate times where people have had really lengthy opportunities to reflect on the experience. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we catch back up with Tripp when he's coming out of like rehab Mm -hmm. we catch back up with the Lisbons after they've gotten divorced and are living Mm -hmm. in different locations so there's a sense of temporal specificity and yet it's completely unmoored and because we never actually know which of the boys is our narrator it Mm -hmm. really is the hive mind voice but it's also a completely indeterminate voice like you don't actually know anything about the boys who are writing it mm-hmm. in the same way that you almost don't know anything about the girls that they're writing about because they don't actually know these girls it's yes. like it's so odd they don't know them at all right it's not like we were best friends with cecilia and this horrible thing happened and this is us thinking through what happens to her sisters in the aftermath These girls have always been a fantasy ideal for these boys, right? Like five beautiful sisters. I mean, that's that's what they are. There's many times in the text, you know, like when they take the girls to the homecoming dance, the young women are completely interchangeable, right? Yeah. It's like... It doesn't matter who your date is. It's whichever girl is... Yeah. They realize when they get to the door that they never actually talk to each other about, other than Lux and Trip, they've never talked to each other about who's taking what girl. And it 100% doesn't matter to any of them. No. Yeah. Even, I think, in the darkest moment, and it's in both the book and the film, when the boys go to get the girls in the final evening, I can't remember which of the boys it is, but they're wandering around the basement before they stumble into Mary's hanging body, Mm -hmm. and the boy is just like, I just want to get a feel. Of any of them, right? He's like, I just want to feel one of them. Yeah. You're just thinking, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're so obsessed. Honestly, it is just like Paper Towns where these girls have taken on this imaginary force in these boys' lives. But at the end of the day, they are objectified to the point of idealization Mm -hmm. and idealization, again, but not in any kind of real human way, which is hilarious because the book is so humane. Like it's really, it's about living and dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Like, I find it astoundingly well-written and just, yes. it's so beautiful, but at the same time, it's freaking horrible. 
Well, even the relationship between Trip and Lux, which is the only sort of actual like relationship mm-hmm. in the text, even that, what attracts Trip to Lux is not anything about her as a person. It's the fact that she's the only girl at school who isn't chasing him. Yes. And then the minute that he gets what he wants... He's gone. Yeah. And she has to take a cab home from her sexual encounter that basically ruins the lives of all the girls because that's mm-hmm. what sets off the shutdown, right? Yep. Boys are the worst. Boys are the worst. And I find... I think that Eugenides is incredibly skillful. I also think... I also think that not all of the misogyny here is intentional. Yeah. Like, it's one thing to decide to reflect on the ways in which boys treat young women as fodder for the imagination and not human beings. But, like, I look at how much empathy the text has for Mr. Lisbon and how little it has for Mrs. Lisbon. And I just, it really... Like, that to me is the novel's failing, is that it is about humanity, but it's about the humanity of men. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, one thing I appreciated about the film adaptation is that the Sofia Coppola injects an awful lot of humanity into Mrs. Lisbon. Yes. She's a much yes. more sympathetic character in the film, and I found that a lot more palatable as a female viewer. Because for me, like, I don't know, she's just, she's such a caricature of a strict religious mom. I found nothing authentic about her. And in the way that Mr. Lisbon gets to be sort of this frail and flawed human who wants to make inroads into his daughter's social life, but he doesn't really know how to do it within the context of his his faith and his understanding of young women, the way he makes overtures to connect to the boys, like this sense that he is sort of trapped in this house full of women. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you that I, I think... <laughs> The easy way to look at it is because the boys actually interact with Mr. Lisbon, they Mm -hmm. have a greater sense of who he is. And you could say, oh, well, they can't have that with Mrs. Lisbon because she doesn't have a job. She's in the house Mm -hmm. all the time. So they're not interacting with her. But I do think that you're right that misses the point because at the end of the day, even if you think about the way that other women in the book are cast Mm. outside of the Lisbon family, a lot of the more malicious Mm -hmm. gossip and even Mm -hmm. like the female reporter who Mm -hmm. does the sensationalized reporting on the suicide attempts and she really like stirs the pot. Yep. They all kind of come off as these different paper thin caricatures of like, this one's a harpy. This one's this one's a drunk. Because here's an example. I can't remember his name, Uncle something. Oh, the neighbor. Yes. Yeah. Like all we know about him, like in a concrete way in his character, is that he drinks from nine in the morning until he goes to bed. He drinks like a two four of beer a day. He doesn't eat. He's he is slowly succumbing to alcoholism. Mm-hmm. He is slowly dying, which kind of gives him this pathos in terms of his relationship to the girls. He is constructed with so much empathy. He is capable of sort of understanding the girls. He watches them, but he's never described in sort of voyeuristic terms the way even the boys are capable of describing themselves. Mm -hmm. He's more like a night's watchman. And that level of empathy is not extended to a single one of the female characters in the text, right? The female characters are all like blaming the family for having a pointy fence and 
I mean, I honestly think they almost serve like more of a Greek chorus in terms of just the neighborhood's judgment of how the girls are living. Yes. Part of me wonders if this has something to do with the time period in which the book is taking place as well. So Mm -hmm. this idea of conformed gender roles in which Mm -hmm. women don't work, but they do have plenty of time to gossip and Mm -hmm. just talk to one another over things like tennis. Mm -hmm. Whereas if there's something that requires actionable items like taking out the fence after Cecilia has committed suicide or cutting down trees, like these are all manly activities and therefore Mm -hmm. men are the ones who are charged with doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. I keep coming back to this idea that like every single one of these things we're talking about is a choice that Eugenides made in constructing the narrative, right? Oh, like, of course. Yeah. He is the master. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no. So uh, uh, the only reason I say that, like, it's not like I think you don't know that. I'm just saying it as I'm trying to think through this sense that like, even though this is a book about the suicides of five young women, Eugenides only cares about the male characters. <laughs> like he's only interested in those stories and he's only interested in constructing those characters in interesting ways with the exception maybe of Lux. Yeah. And that It's so interesting because I do uh, I don't want to make a broad generic statement, but I do more often than not feel like men who mm-hmm. are considered sort of top of their game in whatever field it is have Mm -hmm. a relatively narrow frame when it comes to thinking about the characters that they're creating. Because I've seen this in films so Mm -hmm. often Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you've got just an absolute dynamo creator, but they are unable to write outside of their sort of blinders on male, often white, often heterosexual, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. and the result is often these roles that to be interesting for women, for people of color, for, you know, people with non-conforming identities or othered identities. And they come off either tokenistic or really shallowly written or performed. Yes, I agree. And it's one of those things where like, if this book had been written by a woman and focalized the way it was, but with the genders reversed... I think that it would have been considered a very well-constructed work of domestic fiction. Or even labeled ridiculous. Yeah, potentially. I don't think there's any chance. Like, we still, we still consider the lives of men, particularly the lives of white men, to be universal stories, and the lives of everyone else to be written for those people, (laughs) you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I say this from the position, as I've already articulated, of thinking that Jeffrey Eugenides is an incredibly gifted writer, but like, this is literary fiction, right? I'm thinking about it alongside other literary fiction folks like Celeste Ng, for example. Oh my gosh. This reads a lot like a Celeste Ng novel. It really does, but... But... Celeste Ng is constantly being shelved and reviewed as women's fiction, domestic fiction, even though she can write men's perspectives and even teenage boys' perspectives with a thousand percent more felicity, nuance, care than what Eugenides does for women in this book. Man, now you're just making me wish I had read Celeste (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just thinking, because this book reminds me a lot of Everything I Never Told You. Yes. Which, P.S., if people have not read oh. this, it's not young adult fiction. So we are, we're playing outside of the sandbox, but 
oh man, if you want a devastating yes. read about the family mm-hmm. from all of its fractured, dysfunctional perspectives, mm-hmm. oof, wow, that book is like a punch to the gut. So, and and every single character in that text, regardless of their age, even the young woman who is part of the affair narrative, like even she gets written with nuance and care and perspective and attention. Mm-hmm. And I just... I can't help it when I read someone like Eugenides to think that a great deal of his celebration is coming from the fact that he is a white dude writing for white dudes. He is a gifted Mm -hmm. and incredibly gifted writer. I wish he could take the care with other perspectives that he gives to a group of very generic white boys. Like they too are interchangeable in the text and yet they have such depth sort of paradoxically compared to the young women who are ostensibly the center of the narrative. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, considering that, let's unpack some of the creative decisions here. Because Mm -hmm. I think, to me, the most interesting thing about this book is the fact that it, A, doesn't have that single narrator, Mm -hmm. but also the fact that the timelines are so fluid and Mm kind of shifting. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fact that the novel almost reads like some kind of news investigation where they're cataloging evidence, you know, they're locking it away with photos of each of the individual girls and item 57, we've got Lex's bra that we stole from the bathroom and we've got... The diary, like such a violation. Yeah. Yeah. They're going through the girls' trash, they're stealing from their homes and these kinds of things. But... This is obviously a very deliberate construction Mm -hmm. from Eugenides. And I'm wondering, A, I have no idea if this is how he typically writes. Like, is Middlesex the same kind of weird, fluid, malleable? Middlesex, it's a family epic. It sprawls across multiple generations. Okay. It does play very loosely with time, and it does attend very carefully to objects, but not quite in the same way. This definitely has the feel of documentary fiction. Okay. I'm thinking of an example like The Death of Donald Whalen by Michael Winter, which is like a novel that he constructed entirely from court transcripts. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's oh, it's a beautiful novel, by the way. But that that has a very it has a very similar vibe. I mean, obviously this is not that. This is entirely fictional, but yes. it feels <laughs> like a mm-hmm. work of documentary fiction. Like it feels like these objects are things that you could go and see. It's almost like the narrator is walking us through a highly curated museum exhibit about these girls. Yes, I love that idea. The passage of time is interesting too. I mean, ultimately, I think the passage of time is what makes this not a YA book. Okay, elaborate. Yeah, I will. So I'm thinking about like um, Stand By Me, where yes, the central characters are teens, but the story is not being told by a teenager. The story is being told by an adult reminiscing about his teenage experience. Yes, because this book is nothing if not nostalgic. Exactly. So what we have here is an adult narrator remembering or attempting to remember how he felt in the moment when he was a teenager. And so part of what the novel's doing is it's really playing with the idea of memory and perspective. Like, I loved the film, but the film can't do one really compelling component of what the book does, which is we are always reading from multiple perspectives because 
although it's being narrated by the boys, they're constantly like interviewing people who were there, right? They're telling us where they got this information because none of it is firsthand. Mm -hmm. So we're always playing this game of like the slippage between understanding and perspective and memory and memory loss and nostalgia, right? And so, yeah, so YA is focalized through a teen. It's not YA when it's an adult remembering their teen experiences. That's really important because that's part of what makes YA feel so immediate and vivid and why the emotions are so raw in YA. Mm -hmm. So like off the top, you were talking about, we were both talking about how like that time gives us some distance on what's happened in the text. Like if this was YA... Even if it was focalized from the boy's perspective as YA, we would have been in the basement discovering the bodies and understanding the immediate emotional resonance of that, right? We don't get any of the emotional resonance of that moment in this version because there's so much time has passed, so much distance is there, is inbuilt into the text. That's so interesting. I had literally never even considered that. Like this is our 25th episode. (laughs) (laughs) literally had never occurred to me that there's an immediacy i mean obviously now that you're saying it it's making perfect sense and yet that never wow you kind of just blew my mind (laughs) (laughs) oh i like when that happens i'm very proud of myself (laughs) i'm just thinking back to all of these very texts that we've examined and yeah they are always of the moment and that's why there's such a raw emotionality to it because these characters uh and you know what and that's also why so frequently we have the first person narrator mm-hmm. yep because it's this individual going through it at that moment exactly and what we're ultimately interested in is the character's movement through the experience like pretty much across the board whether you're reading a ya dystopia or a ya fantasy or a ya realist book or even YA nonfiction. Even YA nonfiction is written the same way. It's one individual's movement through experience and our experience of their reactions. Mm, this is so interesting. <laughs> now somebody's going to get on hashtag HKHSpod and give us like 4,000 examples where this is not the case. I welcome <laughs> it. I welcome it. Because what's most interesting about tropes is subversion of tropes, right? I mean, ultimately. Absolutely. Yeah, so that to me is why this doesn't function as YA. That said, and maybe this is a transitional moment, the film is really, really important to teens and 20-somethings. The first time I saw this film, it was because a friend of mine gave me a copy when we were like 23, and he was like, this movie meant a lot to me. So there's something that happens in the transposition between the book and the film that I think, I think there's less distance. So maybe we could transition and talk about how that functions. Absolutely. Okay, so let's run the trailer for the 1999 Sofia Coppola film, The Virgin Suicides, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this week. What we have here is a dreamer. Someone completely out of touch with reality. Mask out. Bad chance. 
Lux, please put your shirt on this instant. Are you uh, an aviation enthusiast? I don't know if I'd call myself an enthusiast, but... Uh... <laughs> Do you like to wrestle? <laughs> has been said about the girls over the years. Those girls have a bright future ahead of them. But we have never found an answer. Her act was a cry for help. I heard it was an accident. Even then, as teenagers, we tried to put the pieces together. We still can't. We got a full tank of gas. We'll take you anywhere you want to go. About time. We've been waiting for you guys. Okay. So, I think there's a couple of important things to be said which we will get to as soon as I do the cast list, of course. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to dive right into it. So this is written and directed by Sophia Coppola, who, of course, is Francis Ford Coppola's daughter. She had always previously been associated with a very short-lived acting career. A lot of people will reference her maligned performance in The Godfather 3 as one of that film's absolute worst aspects. But she has since turned into arguably one of the most renowned working female directors. She hasn't had the longest of careers, but a lot of her film output has been quite well received. It's very feminist. It's often fixated on young adult heroines, and it's not afraid to get its hands dirty. So let's see. Amongst the cast, we've got Kirsten Dunst as Lux, who is arguably the focal point of the film. We've got Josh Hartnett relatively early in his career as Trip. There we go. Trip. Yeah. Trip Fontaine. But these boy names, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and then the parents are played by Kathleen Turner and the father is James Wood, who I would actually prefer to just acknowledge that he is in this movie and then not talk about him after that. Wait, which one? James Wood. Oh, yeah. He once was a very fine actor, and mm-hmm. he is good in this movie. And that mm-hmm. is about as much credit as I am prepared to give him, because he is a reprehensible human being. Yeah, he's and... a profoundly garbage person. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so let's not give him any more credit than that. It's our podcast. We get to decide things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of other notable people in the cast. I don't know if they're notable just to me because I've seen them in a bunch of other things. So Mary is played by A.J. Cook, who has appeared in a bunch of interesting films, but people would probably know her because she's on Criminal Minds. And one of the boys is Jonathan Tucker, who has been in a bunch of different television and films. So people might recognize him from things like Westworld. I don't know. That's that's more or less what I've got in terms of the the cast. Hayden Christensen is one of those boys as well. Yes, he is. Yeah, he's really only in that one scene where he mm-hmm. takes. He's one of the guys who takes the girls to homecoming. Mm-hmm. And Danny DeVito plays the psychiatrist. Yes, I was surprised when he showed up, but then that's it. Yeah, I kind of thought that they would maybe bring him back for a little bit more, but the film has no interest in doing more of that. 
It's funny because normally he drives me 100% crazy and I was like, oh, cool. He's great in this. <laughs> he's barely on screen. Well, there is that. Um, and then the only other thing, did you mention Giovanni Ribisi? No, I did not. Where is he? He is the voiceover. He's the narrator. Gosh. Yep. Oh, okay. I hadn't picked up on that. For some reason, I thought it was Jonathan Tucker doing the voiceover. No, he's definitely the voiceover, and people will probably remember him from his run on Friends, or as I remember him as, the bass player in That Thing You Do. That'll work, too. <laughs> Over the government, I think, saving private Ryan, but sure. Oh, uh, whatever. <laughs> Devin would back me up on this. He would, it's true. And I have seen it a hundred times because I'm married to him, but still. Okay, let's okay. talk about the movie. So a couple of major changes, some I think matter and some I think don't. In the book, we have a pregnancy scare slash maybe an abortion happens. It's not actually really clear in the book. I definitely took it to be an abortion, but I think you could read it in two different ways. I totally read it as an abortion. And then everything I read about it, prepping for the podcast, was like her pregnancy scare. And I was like, I'm sorry. So there's a scene in the book where she fakes appendicitis. So this is after they've been trapped in the house. Lux fakes appendicitis in order to get out of the house, to get to a hospital so that she can, I think, terminate a pregnancy. She's been late for 41 days at that point. So, and then she doesn't have a baby. So I I, I presume that's what's happened, but it's true that it isn't said explicitly. Mm -hmm. I don't think that ultimately matters. That excision makes a lot of sense in the context of like having to tighten up the plot. Yeah, and I think it makes for a more compelling visual that the girls are more or less sequestered in the house and never really get out again. Yes. Three changes that I think are more significant. One is that you don't really see the house decay in the same way in the film that it does in the book. And so you lose kind of, there's almost like this pathetic fallacy in the relationship between the house and the girls. And as the house is sort of succumbing to nature, so the girls are kind of succumbing to this sense of like a suicidal contagion that Mm -hmm. is in the home. Well, and even when you see the girls, they don't necessarily look sick or thin. No, no. I mean, I think in the film, the timelines are a lot shorter. You get told at the end of the film that it's been a year, but you certainly don't have the sense that they've been like trapped in this house for that long. No. No. Whereas in the book, that's really clear. Again, I actually, I mean, I I miss it it because the visual is nice in the book, but I don't think it ruins the film by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I did feel like it was something that worked better on the page. Yes. The two changes that I think do matter one a lot and one not really a lot is the book makes a ton of references to class and race that it never unpacks intentionally so right like this is the 1970s this is the perspective of a group of white boys white affluent middle class to upper middle class boys Mm -hmm. but all through the text they make reference to the fact that there are black maids black caregivers black people waiting for the bus as they drive by in their cars. There are all these references to the segregation of the society in which they live. And Coppola excises all of that from the film. It would be a different film if she tried to also address the class and race issues that are going on in the book. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be hard to do it in the film in a way that underscores the obliviousness of the boys. Like, I think Eugenides does it really well. Yes. But I missed it. I don't think it was a mistake on her part. I just missed it. 
It's interesting, though, that you bring it up because I'm thinking now about her other films like Marie Antoinette, like The Bling Ring, and considering her own background Mm. where she is the daughter of a very well-known, very affluent individual. Mm. It's interesting that she, I think, is clearly working through some of her own class-based I don't want to say issues because I don't know if they're actually a bother for her, but she has a thematic interest in exploring that in a number of, particularly her early films. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because I did feel like there's a good proper amount of taking to task the status and concept of a suburbia in Mm -hmm. the film but Mm -hmm. it doesn't extend beyond that like the film actually seems very encapsulated Mm -hmm. yeah whereas in the book there's this whole other world that operates under what the boys are capable of being aware of and eugenides gives us reminders of that in these really subtle and interesting ways that doesn't take away from criticism of eugenides as a writer who is very interested in white affluent people Uh, i'm not giving him a ton of credit for this but i think (laughs) it's an interesting thing that happens in the book that is absent from the film absolutely really the only one that i think changes the overall film i have no idea where you're going with this and i'm so interested (laughs) is mary okay so In the book, Mary doesn't die when her sisters do, and she does in the film. The effect of it in the book is that, again, these girls don't get to be like human beings. The effect of it in in the book is that this sort of torturous narrative continues to stretch on. Yeah, it lingers over the summer. It lingers over the summer, and for months, and the boys tell us, like, people are just like, I wish she would die already. Even though, like, she fully recovers and goes home. The reason she dies is because she attempts a suicide that she completes. Yes. And the callousness of the community being like, ugh, I wish that last one would die so this whole thing can be over. Or even that they just talk about her or assume that she almost already is. Everyone assumes that she's dead. And when she does come up as still being alive, people are like, ugh. And that stretches out to almost the very end of the book. Yes. Because it makes that final party scene where the boys go to a big debutante kind of coming out ball, not yes. a ball, like a party that yes. one of their neighbors is throwing. And it's actually that evening that Mary yes. successfully completes her second suicide attempt. But the whole idea is that there's been an overwhelming stench that has yes. percolated. So they've had to go with a very tone deaf theme for this party which is called asphyxiation and then mary completes her suicide by sleeping pills so alongside the scene of the dad making fun of teenage suicides like by falling backwards into the pool and going oh i'm a teenager i have so many problems no one understands me and meanwhile mary is dying yeah it doesn't have quite the same knowing kick in the film Mm -hmm. so it just feels you get that Callous. sense that they have they have moved on and yes. they they have not understood anything about what has happened, even though they are content to blame the fall of the yes. neighborhood to the girls. Yes, yes. And so I think that to me is the only change from the book to the film that I think is a lack in the film. All the other changes make sense to me in terms of keeping the film like a cohesive whole. And I appreciate, I was saying to Joe off the top and I've had like, most hellacious day and i've never been so grateful for a film for this show to only be an hour and a half as i was was today i mean it's a tight well-articulated little narrative but that is the one change that i missed i will say 
Yeah, I can definitely understand why she would have made that excision. Mm -hmm. Just for pacing purposes alone, I can imagine her saying, you know what, the end result is the same, and I can probably communicate some of that with the party sequence. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it does lose that extra bit. But it's interesting, though, because I thought what you were going to raise was the lack of future involvement. Mm, I can see why she did that, though. I started the movie knowing we were going to lose all of the temporal play. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just assumed she wasn't going to do it. Right. Except that it does happen once. With Trip. So I, I haven't seen this film in quite a number of years. So I remember liking it. I remember feeling that it's very affective, that it's very dreamlike, that it's very ethereal. And when I was watching it, it was actually a bit more grounded and realistic than I remembered. Like, I always Mm -hmm. remembered it having an almost hazy feeling. And it does have Mm -hmm. that in a couple of motions, like... The wink? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and the underpants? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a moment. But um, (laughs) I guess the big thing was I had completely forgotten that there is those couple of cutaways to Future Trip when he's Mm -hmm. reminiscing. But it's the Mm -hmm. only time that it happens in the film. And honestly, this go around, I found it kind of off-putting because it feels out of context or out of play with everything else that's happening in the film. Yeah, it's definitely weird. It made me feel like there were a whole bunch of other interviews that got shot but not cut into the film. Yeah. Like, it seems weird that she would have only gone back to Trip in that way when she wrote the screenplay, you know? I agree, yeah. But you're right, it, it's jarring. Part of the reason why I think it's jarring, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but is that it gives, and maybe this is just because he's now Josh Hartnett, to me it gave Tripp's character like an undue significance in the yes. film that he doesn't have in the book. Okay, so that's fascinating. I feel like we're unlocking a bunch of really cool, interesting topics. Because to me, the film occasionally feels unmoored. So mm. there's a lack of clarity even though we obviously have the voiceover narration and it's still credited to a boy, but as you've mentioned now, because it's Giovanni Urbisi who does not appear in the film, is not named, it still has that disconnected feel of who is actually telling this story. So it's you just mm-hmm. know it's from the boy's perspective. But the girls are still held at a distance until you get to the sort of middle section of the film where Trip enters... And then suddenly the film becomes his. So there's Mm -hmm. very little voiceover narration during the entire sequence when Tripp is active on screen. Oh, I didn't notice that. You know, it happens in the book where you get history about how Tripp lost his virginity to a car dealer while his father was having a vacation with his male lover. And this awoke a sort of Lothario vibe in Tripp that he carried over when he lost the baby fat and returned to school in the fall. All of a sudden, all the women and all the girls loved him. Mm -hmm. And you get a taste of that in the film. But the interesting thing about the film is, to me, there's a spark in that section where Tripp comes on, we get that introduction to Josh Hartnett and his swagger. He and Kirsten Dunst have very good chemistry, which is interesting because I still feel like the film does a good job of not developing the girls and keeping them slightly interchangeable. Like, Mm -hmm. even though we know all of their names, I found even when they would appear on screen, I couldn't remember which one was which, apart from Mm -hmm. Lux. 
And I think mm-hmm. that's a very deliberate decision by Sofia Coppola to prioritize and give Kirsten Dunst more of that spotlight role. Like, to me, Lux yes. is the lead sister. Yes. And then the whole section with her and Trip plays out in... It's almost like a mini movie or like an extended vignette of the rise and fall of a more traditional high school relationship where the boy pursues the girl. The girl can't quite commit because of mitigating circumstances. It ends at the dance, which we just talked about over the last couple Mm -hmm. of weeks. And then there is the fall where the boy Mm -hmm. is revealed to be a cad. Mm -hmm. I think to me, my absolute favorite moment of the film is when Lux wakes up in the dawn and she realizes that she's completely by herself and Coppola cuts so that we see the entire football field and this poor girl is just all Mm -hmm. by herself in her striking Mm -hmm. white dress she has to stand Mm -hmm. up and put on her shoes and then Coppola cuts back a moment later to Tripp's voiceover where he got up and just walked away from this girl and Mm -hmm. he can't even rationalize why i think it's so powerful it's so telling of high school narratives it just it aches i agree with you a thousand percent except that that's not what's supposed to happen in the book i know i'm not supposed to do that (laughs) (laughs) but that's what i mean about like the film makes trip and lux these like main characters in a way that neither one of them is in the book yeah It's something that you're honestly kind of rooting for, right? Yes, of course, because it's what we expect to see in a in a teen story, right? Is a central romance, and that becomes a central romance. And then he, of course, is an arse. And but I like that at the end of the day, even though we get the future interview with him. So I guess the other thing that I think the film has that the book doesn't always have: the book has commentary, the film Mm -hmm. has comedy. So yes. Agreed. That trip interview is cut at the end where the nurse comes in and says, you know, it's time for your 3 p.m. group session. Group. And it's yeah. like, well, this guy, you know, we knew he was an arse because he abandoned yeah. her and he did that. But it's also like, you know, he looks okay in the future interview. And then that Until just, you get that yeah, moment. Cuts Until you realize he's institutionalized, yeah. right? Like in that moment, you discover he's been institutionalized. So obviously his life has gone off the rails. Yeah. So I I love that Coppola is playful in that way. So I do think Mm -hmm. that that suffuses some of those traditional notions of, oh, but, you know, they were so hot and they were so good together. And there's still that commitment to seeing this terrible event followed through. But it also then says these men are not good. Like, they're really bad. Yes, I agree. That is something that the film does really well is that the book has a very boys will be boys approach to the young men and their voyeurism. And in the film, they are way, way, way skeezier. And I think that comes from the fact that there are very few supporting male characters in the film. It's basically just the boys and Mr. Lisbon. We don't get all of the very sympathetically portrayed men of the town Mm -hmm. with the exception of like, there's no uncle. They're there in group scenes when they pull out the fence and stuff, but we don't, we don't hear about their lives in the way we do about the book. So in the film, It's very much, these boys are in the process of misunderstanding these women. Let's watch, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Whereas the book is like, this is, you know, boys, and this is what an adolescence looks like, and more. Yeah, it seems as though the book was almost created from the starting vantage point of, so, what are boys like? 
how do they interact or how do they conceive of women at this age? Mm -hmm. Whereas Mm -hmm. the film, I think, is actually created from let's tell the story of these women who Mm -hmm. were never allowed to blossom, but we obviously Mm -hmm. still have to keep this male point of view. But I think Mm -hmm. there are subtle changes. So there are scenes... Okay, I'm trying not to jump around. There are more scenes set within the Lisbon house. Mm -hmm. So we get a better sense of what it is like to actually live in there. We get a better sense of the layout. There's also more scenes with the girls without any of the voiceover or the boys commentary and that also includes more of mrs lisbon yes agreed and she's much more sympathetic as i said like i really i feel for her my heart aches for her in the film Mm -hmm. in a way that you are never invited to feel in the in the book she's not shrill or no she's strict but you get a greater sense that it's coming from a place of love and protectionism yes but even the stuff like like you never see them go to church you never hear them talk about church but kathleen turner wears her cross and she sometimes handles it during scenes yes yes i think coppola has an amazing visual eye she's got a couple of really great visual signifiers up her sleeve like the aforementioned scene where you mentioned it earlier where as the boys are coming to pick up the girls for the homecoming Mm -hmm. dance and you cut to an iris view of Lux's underwear where her Mm, her dress is transparent so that you can see that she's written Tripp's name on her underwear yeah which is like it's a huge deal in the book like it's a recurring motif it's a battle of wills between her and her mother that she will write the name of the boy that she's in love with and then her mother will Burn it. Burn bleach it, it or bleach it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas here, it's just that one little quick visual, but it tells you so much about who Lux is without actually having to say it. But because we only see it in the context of Trip in the film, there's a sweetness about Lux that I don't think she is granted in the book. And there's a heck of a lot less sort of slut shaming of Lux and her choices Indeed. in the film than there it is feels... in the book salacious in the book whereas in the film it seems like an infatuated girl totally like normal yes yeah (laughs) you know like you see it and you're supposed to know you're supposed to know exactly what and why she's done it in the film whereas in the book it's like girls be weird look at this weird thing she's doing (laughs) she's so slow i think one of the things i disliked the most about the book was when they talked about how they tried to mirror the acts that they saw lux performing in all of their yes. future sexual encounters as though that yes. was somehow literally for the rest of their adult lives for the rest of their adult lives it's super gross i don't like that and, part. and you know again i think it's really easy for somebody to listen to this and say oh well you know i think they're just leaning into it a little bit too much because this <sighs> is the portrayal of boys who are infantile yeah but at the same time these are conscious decisions. Yeah, read the book home. <laughs> well, because seriously, like this, this happens. This is a conversation I have with my students all the time, which is like, well, that's just what happened in the book. Like that's just the way it was. Okay, but like the book isn't defined by a supernatural being the author made the choices that made you think that that was the only way those characters could be portrayed so let's talk about it well and if that is the true intention then what is that moral message because you can't just say oh well that's who the character is because it's a commentary yeah exactly and 
and this is a problem. Mm. <laughs> I loved a lot of things about Middlesex, but I found the marriage plot, which is Eugenides' third novel, almost unreadable because the women characters are so unlike any woman I've ever had an actual conversation right. with. And it's one thing with the context of this book where, like, obviously image and reality and memory and nostalgia are all yes. at play. But in a pretty straightforward, realist, literary novel about marriages, it's kind of unforgivable. Mm-hmm. So, I I hesitate to even raise the issue of YA bingo here, Joe, based on the fact that it's not really a YA book, but I still kind of came up with a couple. I don't know how you feel about I'm it. I'm good to play. I'm always good. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay. Because I definitely think that in both the book and the film, I don't mean I don't mean the girls' suicides, but I do think this is a book and a film about rich people problems. Yes, from the perspective of I would say from the perspective the of the community and the class. Yeah. Yes, and like the way they go about their lives after the suicides. Like I'm thinking about the final scene in both book and film where we have this. Well, not the final scene in the book, but yes. the party, right? This this debutant ball mm-hmm. thing. To me, it's I think there's a strong critique in both the film and the book about how life and humanity are viewed from a certain perspective of Mm -hmm. class yeah something we've not talked about it's not a huge deal in the film because it's only touched on in one scene but there's an ongoing strike of the cemetery workers in the book yes and it's treated very callously like nobody cares about their plight until all of a sudden young girls begin to commit suicide and then it's kind of like these bodies need to be put in the ground and it's touched on very briefly in the film when cecilia does carry through and mm-hmm. Mr. Lisbon has to get out of the car and there's a good use of not having dialogue be audible mm-hmm. in the film. Agreed. So there's a couple Agreed. of different times where you don't hear what Mr. Lisbon is saying. It happens also when he explains the deal to Trip about how the girls have to be home at certain times for homecoming and so on. But they let him through because his daughter was 13. But I think that's probably the extent that we get about the class. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's no race at all in the film. But no, no, no. So that's, I mean, that's my one is rich people problems. That's the one I wanted to raise. Did you? Think I about had it? parents don't understand. Oh, yeah. A little bit more so for, sure. for Good. the book because I for do think book. that they understand more in the film. They just don't. I agree. No, they don't know how to act. Yeah. They just don't know how to deal with it. So they don't. It's just interesting because the idea of using the home as a prison is Mm -hmm. something so quintessentially young adult to me. The idea that, you know, your parents will ground you if you are not right. And this just gets taken to the max where, you know, I love the scenes in the in the latter part of the film where we just see the girls all stuck in this single one bedroom. And you can get a yes. real sense of their ennui and their boredom as, you know, they're just trying to make life bearable by giving each other makeup tutorials and listening to records and stuff. But yeah. It, yeah. it really is like a suburban prison cell. I agree yeah. completely. I think that was probably really the only one for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not YA, so we shouldn't be expecting it to conform to the tropes. But as I say, the film has been important to teen and young adult audiences for a a long time now. And I think it's worth discussing in this context to talk about why it is that this book that's ostensibly focalized 
well, that this book that is ostensibly about teenagers is not, in fact, YA. And I think we did a good job of talking yeah. about that today. And I think I can understand why the film works so well for female viewers, because to me, mm-hmm. the film is very, I don't want to say feminist, but there's a female perspective to mm-hmm. it. Whereas mm-hmm. I would say that the book, there's only a male perspective to Agreed it. Agreed 100%. Which I love the idea. Like, this is why you need a female director. Yes. Yes. Like, this would have been a completely different film if a man had have written and directed it. Not that it I'm saying men st- can't do it. No, but it would have been Stand By Me with Suicide. <laughs> Which, I mean, it, but it would. Like, that's because, honestly, if Eugenides wasn't a better, like, if Eugenides wasn't a gifted writer of literary fiction, this would not be a pleasurable is mm-hmm. the wrong word but it would be almost unreadable in certain hands right to have this this yes. such oh, male sure. focalization so yeah all right okay if you want to disagree with us about what we think mm-hmm. <laughs> who ya is and please do not send us any virgin suicides fanfic because i think i'll die Ugh. yeah uh you can find us on twitter on hashtag hkhs pod you'll catch both of us that way and we always respond joe how can they find you on the twitters I am at B stole my remote. That's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Yes. And if you have a longer diatribe about why you think Eugenides is a masterful writer, or even if you think that this film does conform to young adult literature tropes, you can always send us an email at hkhspod at gmail.com. And speaking of rich people problems, Joe... Next week, <laughs> we are going to... The land of the rich and famous. Oh my God, we're talking Gossip Girl. Uh, yes. The first, only the first book, and I think we'll maybe get through the first two episodes or so of the show. I know you've seen it, but I have not. Yes, I've seen at least the first season from what I can remember. But yeah, we're going to revisit the first couple of episodes because they are mostly reflective of what the book aims to do so i'm gonna bring my class warrior hat with me so <laughs> stay tuned for that yeah i'm pretty <laughs> sure people can guess those ya bingo squares right off the top i mean it might be a whole card at this point who knows <laughs> yeah good call all right so until next time i'll see you on the page and i will see you on the screen <laughs> <laughs>